friends and enemies it's episode 186 of this machine kills i'm jathan joined by jeremy unfortunately ed couldn't make it because the universe would not allow him to be at this recording so just a quick recap ed was speaking at netroots nation in pittsburgh uh, and was meant to fly in last night but because he hit a bunch of blackjacks at the casino, the karmic balances had to go the other, you know, had to weigh out. And so his flight was delayed overnight until the next day and then has since been delayed a couple hours every time it's meant to start boarding. So Ed does not live in New York anymore. Ed lives in Pittsburgh and um, he is finding a job at either a defunct steel factory or a Heinz plant. Um, he will be thomas friedman's heiress wife's personal assistant so that that is uh that that's what's up with ed maybe you know eventually he'll be back on the podcast but i know he's very sad to miss this episode which we have had planned and could not move because our guest was very very kind to speak with us late at night in london um we are happy to be joined by dan mcquillan who is a lecturer in creative and social computing at Goldsmiths in London, and also the author of a really, really great book called Resisting AI, An Anti-Fascist Approach to Artificial Intelligence, which I will say, you know, in, in all uh, disclosure, I was approached by the publisher, Bristol University Press, to provide an endorsement blurb for the book, and I was happy to do so. And as I said, uh, with analytical and moral clarity, McQuillan makes the case for recognizing the radical politics of AI and meeting its goose step march head on. So, Dan, thank you for joining us. Uh, very excited to get into your book. It's really great to be here. Yeah, I, I, I mean... First of all, I, I, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good book, and I also do appreciate that it's, um, uh, it's, it's following this lineage of books recently, a lot of them coming out of presses like Verso, but academic presses, I'm happy to see are getting on it, of just like 
books that are that are more like really extended essays. Like they have one big argument, one big thought to give, and they do so in a really punchy and succinct way. They get to the point, um, and your book does that really well. It doesn't spend a lot of time beating around the bush or padding out the word count. So it's actually one that people who don't have to read these tomes uh, for their job can pick up, read in a, in a weekend and understand and move on. I'm really happy to hear that. I mean, that was the intention. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I hang out in academia because I do believe that some of that depth critique is, is really necessary, you know, because if we start from, from a lot of assumptions, pre-cooked assumptions, it's very hard to find a way out of the maze. So, so I do like, you know, the ideas that are generated within academia, but I get very frustrated that they stay there. You know, they're, they're only really accessible to to a sort of mutualized elite. So, I, my interest at the end of the day is in changing things. So, yeah, I'm really happy to hear that the book is at least able to be out there because that's that's what it's intent. That's the intention. Yeah, we'll we'll kind of walk through the book and. One thing it does do is it, it like the the first couple chapters are a really excellent primer for the you know as you put it the operations of AI right like how does this stuff actually work but importantly critically understanding it uh, for the purpose of uh, you know understanding what what kind of work it's doing in the world as well and you know you. It's right there in the title, resisting AI, right? You're, you're, you know, there's no kind of false neutrality here. Um, but importantly, I want to start with that, like, like not only why or how do we resist AI, which we'll get into, but what kind of resistance to what kind of AI? Because, you know, we just released on the Patreon, uh, uh, uh an episode where we dig into and take aim at effective altruism and long-termism, right? Which is now kind of becoming the, the court philosophy, the court ideology of the elite, and especially the, the technological and uh, self-proclaimed enlightened elite. And, and a lot of that shift from the effective altruism, the kind of just, you know, I think a simple-minded but very extremist version of utilitarianism, kind of Peter Singer, Peter Singer style stuff, that shift from there to long-termism, as we talked about, is really influenced by people like Nick Bostrom um, and the idea of existential risk. Um, and with that, you know, yeah, you know, there's, there's meteors and there's climate change and all that, but for them the real existential risk is the intelligence explosion, the singularity, the runaway AI that's going to, you know, turn every atom in the universe into a paperclip if we don't, if, if we don't invest a lot of money into creating good AI controlled by good enlightened people. Um, and in the, in the book, you, you start off right from the beginning saying that, you know, these kinds of Super intelligent AI apocalypses are are not actually the answer to the what resistance, what AI, what harms. So, could you just let's start there? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I do, I do think those things are an incredible diversion, and actually, you know, extremely motivated as 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 I do expound on a bit in the book. Uh, motivated by uh, an unconscious allegiance, perhaps sometimes to some very old. Uh, ideas about, you know, superiority of intelligences that runs across our history of colonialism. So really, that stuff is is very toxic in its own right from its from its very roots. My interest was not engaging in any of that or in any of the sci-fi debates because my 
political understandings would be that actually a lot of the political harm that happens is happening right now is is in the intensification and amplification of ex- systems that are already there that are already imposed on the people with the least capacity to fight back most of the time you know in the bureaucracies you know in the in as you would say the housing projects in you know in in the areas of where minorities live in our cities wherever it is the, there are already many systems which are quite excruciating in their latent cruelty and adding you know uh, the capacity of ai to these systems really amps up a lot of the the tendencies which are already present both uh, sort of technical institutional and and to some extent psychological that allow these things to happen in the first place and and to my mind make them even more weaponized and more dangerous and uh, that's you know that kind of if you like um Ha, you know, has its origins, I suppose, in my commitment to a sort of 1970s community politics. Really, you know that the, this is the the area of primary concern. This is because this is the the actual front line of society, and I see AI having a real effect there right now. Not not nothing to do with you know some projections of a sci-fi future. Mm. You know that 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 idea of a kind of uh, acceleration and amplification of already existing things. I mean that I think is. You know, it's it's definitely a theme and, an, and a, a kind of analytical approach that runs through my work as well. And I, I think it's 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 really powerful antidote to the not only the discourses by the the kind of you know the boosters and advocates in Silicon Valley or the you know the 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 kind of you know people like the Bostroms and the William McCaskills or even Elon Musk who you know are you know, want to be doomsayers about a very specific kind of thing, but even critics, right? Like this is what Lee Vintel calls the crit hype, where it, can, it, it gets really easy to pay a lot of attention to the really fantastical stuff at the sake of the mundane. And not mundane because it doesn't matter, but mundane because uh, it's just all, it's things that already exist. It's normal, right? Like we don't need to pay attention to that. But for, I, I think that you spend a, a fair amount of time in the book, I think rightfully arguing that these are where the real kind of political, like the real politics, but also the real material consequences and, and computational operations of AI are happening. So could you, let's get into that a little bit. Like how is AI um, a, a, a political technology? What kind of politics is it and what kind of technology is it? Sure. Well, I mean, j- just to kind of uh, f- finish off on the point you were making, I suppose one of my uh, starting points would be that the kind of worries you're talking about, and also the kind of more um, more everyday statements about AI, which I find almost equally irritating, which are the ones where, which I'm sure you're over familiar with, where a critique of AI will start off by saying, well, AI, of course, has many things to offer to healthcare, stroke, you know, insurance, stroke driving, whatever it is, you know, but, you know, here's the few problems I've identified. I mean, th- these are both, um, you know, all of these critiques really are, are based on an, on an assumed platform of sort of normality and stability and liberal order. The, the, the assumption that that's what we're living in and that what we should be concerned about are perturbations of those things. And if you 
have a perspective that as I do that actually the world we're living in right now is extremely disordered and, and dangerous and, and, and damaging to f- far too many people and you you would start from a different perspective but I also start from a perspective of somebody who works you know in computer science I mean I, you know I mean in, in the computing department which which of course is, is an advantage to some extent you know and one of my other concerns when, or one of my other let's put it more positively, one of the other things I was trying to address was I was reading a lot of early critiques of machine learning and AI by you know people who really like and respect who are social scientists uh, or even journalists. And you know they, they're getting a lot of things right. And I was, you know, they, I think, hitting a lot of things on the head, but sometimes veering completely off the mark simply because there, w- there wasn't any, basically any real familiarity, let's say, with how this stuff actually operates at a, at a granular level. What does it really do inside? My interest, my method, I suppose, is to try to read across the the levels at the same you know simultaneously i mean the sort of whether you think of it as a kind of uh, a sort of stack or a set of resonances or whatever you know my my interest and my understanding of the of the sort of historical material political effects of things is when there's some kind of um synergy or or some kind of resonance between um a, a sort of the affordances of a tool and the, the political or social situation it's, it's occurring in. So it's a very long-winded way of saying what I'm looking for. I'm, I look at AI and say, well, what's this thing actually doing inside? What is machine learning actually doing? What are the operations of, you know, uh, minimizing a loss lost function? What is backpropagation actually doing? Okay. And then trying to read upwards from that, if you like, in saying what is that likely to not deterministically amplify but under the circumstances where we're looking at the particular distribution of power and decision making that's already exists in society what would this way of doing things exaggerate so you know my understanding of ai at a very basic level is actually it's pretty simplistic i mean it's extremely complicated you know it's mathematically sophisticated it's computationally intensive but essentially it's it's a statistical approximation you know of of a function you know it's taking an a, a lot of input data is taking some you know ex- ex- exemplary output and it's asking a computer to, to to match a function and that's great you know and that's it's all very clever and and you know i actually quite like technology i'm a bit nerdy so you know that's all very interesting but looking at how that works you know on a, on the nuts and bolts of it would for me means looking also at the 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 resonances and the consequences, the likely knock-on effects of putting that into operation in the world. You know, it's it's one thing studying it as a, as a form of computer science, but this stuff doesn't stay in the box. You know, it 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 connects outwards and has unintended, perhaps, like knock-on effects in the real world. So, if we're talking about um, ranking, you know, ranking and, and ordering things in abstract mathematical concepts, but they're also very real, subjective social experiences that can have very real material consequences. So, um, or, or, or decision boundaries, you know, decision boundary, are, are you in or are you out? Are you one of us or are you one of them? I mean, these, these are, you know, a decision boundary is, is, can be a very abstract mathematical concept, but the same kind of thing applied in, in the real world and carrying, you know, whatever authority it does carry. That's, that's one of the things about these kind of methods. What kind of authority do they carry? What authority is as ways of knowing and ways of doing? Then, then those things can have, a, will gain a life of their own. And so, so that's my, my, um, interest in the detail of AI is looking, okay, what is it really doing as a material technology? What's it doing on a data level? What's it doing on an algorithmic level? And what is that likely to, uh, 
what is that likely to act as a resonance chamber for when it gets into the world? I, I'm, I'm, I'm snapping and I'm clapping. I, I love that because, I mean, I think that approach really resonates as well. You know, I've been thinking about it in my own work in terms of a the uh, kind of two archetypes, you know, and, and the first one is the mechanic, right? Like really being that mechanic on getting under the hood, understanding like how are the, you know, how, how does this connect to that? How do these uh, different components kind of fit together? How do they work independently? How do they work as a system, right? Like really, I think it's important to understand all of that stuff to kind of have that, uh, you know, what the the sociologist of, of of knowledge, you know, Harry Collins and 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 his crew down at Cardiff have called um, interactional expertise, right? Like really being able to talk the talk um, with people who work on this stuff day to day, because you understand um, how it works. Even if like I myself could not go in there and you know build the car, I at least understand how the car operates, and I can talk to people who do build cars, and 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 you know and. And, and have real conversations with them. And, and here, you know, the car is AI or machine learning, or, or I'm currently looking at a, uh, a PDF on my desktop right now from uh, the new edition of a generalized linear models for insurance rating textbook put out by the, <laughs> the Casualty Actuarial Sci- uh, Society of America and saying, well, as part of my, you know, insure tech project, this is what I need to do. I need to, you know, I need to read the textbook on how they do and better understand generalized linear models, which is, you know, how uh, actuaries uh, do, un- you know, do underwriting and risk assessment and stuff like that. And so, you know, it's a lot of hard work, but I think you're absolutely right that it's, it's, it's totally necessary to really have to take seriously that like that material analysis um, of of these systems. It's also why, you know, as a inveterate, you know, Marxist political economist, I also read uh, balance sheets and, you know, quarterly reports for companies that I'm, I'm studying and things like that. It's like at once you have to be CFO and CTO and while also being uh, the chief critic of, of all of it. Um, it it's, it's a lot, but I think it's, it, it shows in the work, right? Uh, like it shows in the the quality of the work, the understanding, um, and 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 the analysis that flows from it. Uh, and I think it also, and you know, I'm I'm kind of preempting where we're going to go later in the in the episode, but I think it is also fundamentally a feature of that that kind of other archetype that Team K listeners all know well is the Luddite, right? Like you know, the original Luddites were. The people working with the machines and the technologies, they, their, their critique, both, you know, the political and the material critique, the one that came at the end of a hammer, uh, came about from an understanding of how the technology worked, working with the technology and therefore understanding how the technology was working against them for somebody else's interest. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think at the very least, you and I are trying to um, take the lid off these things so we can we can we can call them out when necessary. You know, not allowing just, that that's a fairly ba- basic sort of political tactic is to be in a position where you can debunk the um, the the claim, the hubristic claim to expertise that people will try to deploy to override you know well-founded 
um, critiques you might have of the effect that something's having on somebody's life. So you can you can open the box and say, well, actually, I know exactly how this works. And to be honest, it's not that impressive at all. And, and, it, and in fact, it's quite distorting. It's quite reductive. It's quite simplifying. And, you know, you're using it really very much within a set of interests, you know, within a very specific set of interests. I mean, I, I, I had a head start on this because when it, I discovered, you know, after a long journey through uh, sort of um, – working with largely non-profits and NGOs around technology and so forth that some of my original training which was I did my PhD in experimental particle physics and and I discovered that some of the maths in you know machine learning was actually very similar to the stuff that I'd worked on all those years ago and I, I could immediately you know not not tooting my own horn as they say but I could I could kind of see through it straight away and that combined with my you know my other experiences of the actual politics of inequality and the two things came together you know, very quickly, and I think maybe that's that's where you you're going with the Luddite. You know that 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 is a techno politics that's not that's non-dual. You know, we we've we've ended up in a situation where these kind of understandings are highly separated. You know, and and, and sort of um, insulated from each other. You have people who understand technology, and then you have people who understand the political effects on in in communities and uh, on people's individual lives. Those two things are partitioned. So, you know, the the the, the Luddite's actual technopolitics came from a, from an embodied understanding of the inseparability of those things. One of the things that you talked about in terms of like how AI is being used, um, you know, you mentioned it here and you talk about it in the book uh, is as this kind of this this kind of technology of of difference in a lot of ways, right? It's about kind of creating, you know, ever-increasing segmentation, um, you know, drawing correlations in order to create difference. Uh, you know, uh, and it, it made me think of something I'm starting to crystallize with my insurance work. And I want to, you know, obviously insurance as we understand it is also based on a lot of uh, difference, right? And a lot of technologies and in insurance are, you know, when they're bringing in different rating factors, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, demographics or genetics or behavior, Based, you know, these sources of data for rating, you know, different techniques for rating, whether it's the, you know, the generalized linear models that have been around since like the 50s or, or now increasingly moving towards kind of AI or machine learning. A lot of that is about multiplying difference and then making that an actionable insight in the, in the world. And it's interesting as well to see like that's not a fundamental uh, necessary feature of insurance, nor is it a fundamental necessary feature of, of AI. You know, in, in reality, right, like insurance, I would argue, can be premised on answering one of two questions, right? It's either what brings us together or what sets us apart. And that first one is the, is the real actual origins of insurance as a social institution uh, based on cooperative solidarity. But then it only became premised on that second one, the what sets us apart, when it became uh, the a capitalist industry based on competitive segmentation. Uh, and I think there's you get to something very similar happening with AI, but and you do so through this kind of uh, anti-fascist approach to AI. Could you just talk to us about what is what is an anti-fascist approach to AI? What's the kind of um, uh, the the usefulness here, analytically, morally, politically, whatever, for kind of connecting um, a, a, a kind of understanding of fascism with a, an analysis of AI? Wow. Okay. Yeah. There's there's probably a few a few pointers 
put in there. But I mean, following on from your just well, just just to start with, because I think it is, is a key point. This idea of difference. The, it's, it's not so much the idea of difference that is a problematic. Uh, I would say it's it's the way that these technologies and actually the actuarial ones, you know, are kind of really just uh, you know along the same spectrum as machine learning and an AI, the way they deal with difference, and this connects with the question about fascistic approaches, I, I, I would say it, the problem with the, the difference is the way that those differences get frozen, that they, they become essentialized. And that idea of essentialized difference is really a starting point for this sort of simplistic uh, and, and usually inevitably ethnocentric understandings, narratives, and solutions that are proposed by you know, whatever, by varying forms, and we see varying forms at the moment from sort of religious fascisms or, or purely political fascisms or eco-fascism, you know, th- these are all, in the end, reductionist and simplistic uh, divisions of us and them, you know, based on some supposed uh, and yet vital innate difference, which in itself not only justifies but sort of mandates in, in intensified forms of violence to exclude and eliminate those others. So so, so dif- difference itself is you know uh, the most interesting thing about the world and life and and there are other ways that's so i, I suppose an anti-fascist approach to to try to answer to your question in that way would be to, about having a different approach to difference you know and it, in that sense the the sort of mutuality and mutual aid that you're talking about as being the origin like here would be the origin of the national health service you know the national health service didn't spring you know newly formed from from the head of some politician in 1945 it was based on exactly that same kind of you know uh, community worker mutual insurance to fund community hospitals and so and, and healthcare and so on and so forth. The but the kind of mutuality that is is anti-fascist is one that is is whose stance is is an embrace of difference and a working with difference rather than an elimination of difference. Uh, so, so that's why I kind of like to also lean on some of the ideas of people like Karen Barad, um, who 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 talks about a kind of new materialistic approach to understanding the world through difference because it the the approach that her and similar thinkers have towards difference is kind of diffractive so my simplistic understanding of that would be that it's about using difference as generative and my concern about you know political projects that head in the direction of fascism or fascisizing things or however you want to put it are those who want to essentialize difference as a starting point towards elimination, and and again the 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 capture process you talked about, where you know mutuality was somehow sort of captured and inverted into to to the other the the other part of your dualism, you know the who who is unlike us, what are we, you know what is the other, you know is is again yeah yeah that's absolutely uh, coherent with um, fascist political understandings, but step uh, sort of moving a couple of steps prior to that, it's also foundational to capitalist or, or ne- particularly neoliberal you know status quo you know the, the idea I, I found through going through the process of writing the book and trying to understand how to figure the the problems which uh, AI accentuates let's say would you know I would come back to terms like enclosure you know that that what we're talking about there is, is that that the there's a resonance between the decision boundaries of AI and broader concepts of enclosure. And just to finish off this rambling uh, response, 
the the problem the, the reason why i focus on having an anti-fascist approach to ai is very much because fascism is already here we can see that it's it's returning in a, in a sort of macro or, or sort of molar political form as the, you know as Deleuze and Guattari would say and it's, it's really there in its overt manifestation you know, nobody needs i think probably uh, any introduction to the idea that there are real fascistic political movements in or close to state power in in very many places and um, more active movements that's really that's the that's the latter symptom of the problem the 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 fascistic political tendencies are latent within our so-called normal liberal order i would suggest whether that's at the the level of the of the sort of um, bureaucratic technocratic way of structuring society and also in the ways we're encouraged to, to behave towards each other to believe about each other this is what the and Guattari called microfascisms you know the, the the sort of latent authoritarian and um, violent impulses which which are are encouraged uh, and produced as subjectivities in this society all these things are already at play and it's n- they they won't they they aren't constrained unless there's a conscious anti-fascism in in whatever it is that we're undertaking that's why i'm trying to to make it clear that you know a commitment to anti-fascism is important in this area as it is in every other I like that the, the, you have a quote in this from uh, Fred Hampton about uh, fascism. Nothing's more important than stopping fascism because fascism will stop us all. It's a true quote. You know, I don't know who said this quote. Uh, fascism is just basically capitalism and decay. It's like what happens is that capitalism starts to fall apart. Fascism takes over. Who runs that capitalist machine right now more than anybody are tech companies. The rush to use, quote unquote, artificial intelligence when some type of, I don't know, like space race to their end goal is going to end up with a lot of people underneath those treads to get to that point. And correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't like um, Temet Guru, weren't they fired from Google for pointing out the tendencies of the AI towards uh, racist and, and other problematic themes of like pointing an individual or pointing people out or not being able to determine people based on those certain things? And then, then, you know, that's something that people are going to get left behind because they're not fitting a specific thing that that AI is programmed, quote unquote, AI is programmed to look at. Absolutely. I th- and I think Tim that's firing, my understanding of it is, and I stand to be corrected, but it, it, interestingly, I think, and, and relevantly, not only this, the engagement with that as a broader narrative, but the daring to point that out within the institution. You know, on, on, on in a way, what might seem like a more mundane level of saying, look, look at the simple everyday inequities, you know, of race and, and gender that operate within our supposedly futuristic, enlightened entity, this organization that we're supposed to believe in, like some kind of religion, you know, for, for the temerity of pointing that out. And I think that's the, that's the kind of um, another symptom of this kind of patholo- the, the pathologies that run through our institutions is that if you 
if and and of course you know the the, the Panthers were you know a, um, you know a far more brutalized and vivid example of this. You know, if you do dare to actually challenge. You know the really existing latent fascisms in society. Then you know you're you're going to draw, and you know a, a perhaps not a perhaps not unexpected response. And, and I think the 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 you know the idea of um, these AI futures uh, you know, really are, that's again coming back to the beginning of our conversation. Why these are such a dangerous diversion? Because you know we're not talking about um, the the dangers of some sci-fi fantasy we're talking about some really mundane um embedded and and gritty everyday problems which are if we can perhaps understand ai not as a technology which is seeming to sort of emerge as the fruition of people's already existing um movie fed dreams about a possible transcendent future but a technology that has already that has itself emerged in a time of collapse you know, AI has emerged post the financial crash. AI is emerged into a world uh, where climate crisis is, you know, ex- accelerating and iterating on itself. You know, it's. I think it, if we have a materialist understanding of technologies, if we understand technology as something that, you know, reflects its times, then you know we're not looking at AI. You know, emerging fully formed fr- from the head of Zeus and then interacting with the world. We have to say, well, AI is actually can be read in this way. It is itself already a response to the veering collapse of of the whatever you want to call it. I maybe call it the neoliberal order. It's a collapsed technology. And it's there to manage, you know, to try and manage that collapse and maintain the hegemony as as much as it can. Yeah, absolutely. You know, to the point about Timnit Gabru, while Timnit is has absolutely and continues to be, you know, vocal um, and pointing out and criticizing the kind of racist, sexist, and other reactionary tendencies in, in Silicon Valley. What they're firing more directly from Google was linked to was a paper that they co-authored about the environmental cost of these large language models. Um, you know, the kind of future of Google's business and, and, and the kind of industry. And so if anything, it, what what they did was point out something even more dangerous to capitalism. You know, the sexism, racism, all that, those are social limits to capitalist growth. But the environmental costs, the resource intensivity, those are material limits to capitalist growth. Uh, you know, the ca- capitalism can handle the social limits, um, but but the material limits are the real kind of uh, uh, limiters here that capitalism must either must ignore and overcome, or just kind of or try to blow through. You know that that I think is a is is very interesting that that was the that was the last straw right like you know we can be we can give the mouth service of uh, you know we care about algorithmic fairness or we care about you know uh, rooting out bias or or uh, you know wagging our finger at discrimination and and these kinds of things but you know, when you start talking about stuff that stands in the way materially of us advancing these technologies, that's, that's a, that's a straw too far. And I think it gets to that point as well, Jeremy, that you were, you were 
you know, talking about. And, and, and I also had the, the same kind of quote in mind that, you know, ca- fascism is capitalism in decay or the way I was thinking of it is that, you know, fascism is a, uh, a, a crisis response from capitalism, right? Like, you know, it, it's, it's, it's the old, you know, internet, uh, internet joke that if you post, uh, you know, a, a, a pet doing something cute or funny online someone's invariably going to come in the mentions and say actually they only do that when they're distressed so this is not really funny um and that's capitalism right when it starts sliding into fascism that's that's when the political economists come in and say actually this is not just weird and funny capitalism only does this when it's in distress (laughs) and so you know that that and you mentioned this in the book as well that you know this is part of that as you, 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 know, you talk about fascism and you're drawing from the work of the political theorist Roger Griffin, who describes it you know, very densely but succinctly as palingenetic ultranationalism, right? Or in other words, this kind of you know, palingenetic being a kind of national rebirth, uh, you know, and the ultranationalism, as you, uh, as you describe it, indicates that we're not talking about a nation defined by citizenship, but by organic membership of an ethnic community. And so it really is that idea, and you rightfully point out that historically fascism has never come about through these kinds of revolutions, um, but by the decision, as you write, of the existing elites that they need it as a prop for a collapsing hegemony. And, and so that, to me, is really a, a powerful insight for understanding the development of AI because as you, write, as you point out, I mean, AI is talked about by everybody as that kind of, uh, as the savior technology, whether it's going to get us to Mars, it's going to push us through the limits of growth, it's going to do this or do that. Everything is always about like, you know, this is what's going to save us from the collapse. This is what's going to save us from crisis, but also it's what's going to preserve uh, and, and further perpetuate the the ruling status of the existing elite in society. Absolutely. And it makes me, recalls for me, again, circling back to our conversation about the the benefits, if you like, of um, trying to spend time with, as you said, what can be sometimes quite tedious or complicated um, internal operations of whatever particular apparatus that we're looking at, whether it's insure tech or AI or something else. I won't mention blockchain. the p- benefits of these things are to to bear in mind that that larger sort of geopolitical concept context at the same time as looking at you know almost at the minute of the technology. When I was looking at AI and trying to understand why there was such a fuss about it, why it was kind of accelerating and inflate you know go, undergoing its own sort of inflationary universe period about ten years ago, um, just to try and understand the the actual internal operations and how they might be applied to fairly mundane everyday problems and issues and questions and functions uh, was when I started to uh, interpret what was going on with the operations of AI as um, running alongside or, or even enacting what, what, um, what, what I was reading at the time in, with a theorist called Agamben, the idea of the state of exception. So, what started off in a very, you know, in a very perhaps superficial way in social media, let's say, um, where there's this kind of, there is a kind of interesting dynamic with AI that reflects 
to, to me reflects the nature of the fascistic threat in our society. And then it's not going to come, you know, goose stepping neatly, you know, down down the main street in an in, in a historically recognizable way. Actually it's it's far more fluid and as we know, meme laden in in the in the present moment. It's it it's coexistence and 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 sort of um transmitted through the, the same te- technological mechanisms of communication interaction that everything else is so it's got a fluidity and yet it also retains that same essentializing binarizing you know us and them uh, finality that's its kind of endpoint so what i'm trying to get to here is the the idea of, of a sort of fluidity of these decision boundaries you know that one of the advantages that ai offers as a mode of ordering is its non-linearity you know its ability to to respond to quite complex data sets and that's you know that's its whole purpose you know it 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 exists to create a functional relationship between things that are um beyond simple analytical relation you can't you know create a simple equation to relate this input data this output data everybody tried to do that with facial recognition for many many years and it never worked and and you know it, it did feel like that was something that only human intuition could do until along came convolutional neural networks they do manage to create that functional relationship they do manage to to draw decision boundaries in ways that are sort of fluid flexible and effective in their own way and what i'm trying to get to here is that's great actually if you want to evade regulation of some kind if you want to evade oversight and order you know what is going to work better for you than a technology that is innately opaque Right, which the stuff is. It's not. It's not just a black box. It's innately opaque because there is literally no way that anybody is going to look at the internal workings of a large deep learning network and 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 be able to unpick it exactly what it's doing. And as we we all know, and I'm sure it's been covered many times on the podcast, the people who do this themselves will go, "Well, I don't really know how it works. You know, I just I, I know that it does work. I mean, I have some operating understanding of." of the ways it does work and perhaps sometimes of its fail of some of its failure modes but i don't really know what goes on inside so, so you've got an incredibly opaque technology which is really good for avoiding any kind of democratic oversight or whatever but but you've also got one that that manages to you know evade uh, regulation in a way that creates w- what i was talking about at that time is Continuous partial states of exception. So I, I, it's not the full state of exception. The full state of exception is the refugee camps that you know the EU is so keen on instantiating at its borders and in other countries where people literally have every right stripped away. They literally are bare life, which is another of a Camden's terms. It's not that yet for most of us. But what it is, is you know much smaller, uh, what seem perhaps somewhat tangential states of exception. It could be as simple as, you know, being excluded from be- using Airbnb because associationally your your data profile triggers some warning feature in, in their trait analyzer. Or it could be something slightly more serious, like which, which is a real example, where a database, you know, a machine learning algorithm tied to a database decides that you would be an opioid risk if you were given these kind of painkillers. And so you're not allowed to have them. And what's more, the pharmacist isn't allowed to challenge that decision either, because they, they are also being um, continually ranked, monitored and assessed by the same system. So, you know, th- these things are, are states of exception in the sense that they they remove a right that you might previously have assumed to have had 
as part of a sort of general citizenship or general, you know, a member of a particular polity. And that effect has, I think, very rapidly, you know, in the last 10 years, moved out from, um, you know, perhaps getting booted unceremoniously off Facebook to, to having the material conditions of your life um, substantially. And I suspect you're finding the same kind of things in, in, in the sort of insure tech stuff that you're looking at, or we, and, and I know that you guys have covered it in terms of fintech, and it's coming at us from all angles. And historically, you know, the, the, if you look at the real way, as just to loop back to your to the point that you made, if we look at how real fascistic situations arise, they don't arise from some you know storming of the of the barricades by by fascism. They come from this some capture of power and then this kind of salami slicing away of rights for particular groups of people in particular places more and more and more and more until you know we sort of like it's the boiling frog thing you know and then we sort of wake up and realize no actually this really is fascism again and here we are and i see some coherence between the operations of ai and that kind of political dynamic hence you know hence writing the book hence advocating an anti-fascist approach and and yeah there we are yeah, lots, lots there to dig into. I'll, I'll start with the boiling frog thing because it, it reminds me. I'm currently reading a teaser for listeners. Uh, next month, we're having Corey Doctor and Rebecca Giblin on Corey back on Rebecca on for the first time. To talk about their new book on uh, called Choke Point Capitalism, and I'm, I'm reading the book right now. It comes out next month, um, but in there they talk about the boiling frog metaphor. That you know, in reality, if you turn up, if the water gets too warm, the frog just jumps out. So what you need is somebody to put a lid on the pot so the frog can't jump out, right? And and so that that's what you know they they describe. That's what the kind of choke points. Uh, that capitalist industries put up in markets to prevent people from exiting, you know, once the prices get too high or whatever. But we see other kinds of systems like that as well, where it's like, you you know, at some point you just got to put a lid on the pot because the water might get too warm and people might get, hey, this, this isn't comfortable anymore. Something's happening here. But by that time, it's too late. They've already put a lid on the pot. And it, you know, now makes me think as well about like, you know, Friend, you know, our, our sister podcast, Trash Future, is very fond of saying, you know, all this can be summed up as computer says no. Uh, uh, you know, whether it's, it's you know, you've, you are applying for welfare benefits, for example, or you're applying for a job or you're applying for insurance, you know, at any point where uh, uh, you have to apply for something and then somebody or a decision has to be made and it comes down to whether the computer says yes or the computer says no. And it's the Weberian, you know, iron cage of bureaucracy, but now it's the, you know, it's the data cage of computation is what it's turned into. It's even more inhuman, even more uh, levels uh, of, uh, of remove from a seemingly human decision point and therefore a human authority and human legitimacy that can be questioned or appealed in some way. Uh, and, and it makes me think as well about what you were talking about with, you know, a fundamental feature of that AI and fascism both have in common is this kind of essentialization of difference, not just the identification of difference and the increasingly technical forms of, 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 
observing and managing and creating that difference. You know, thank you, IBM, for providing the punch cards for the, you know, to help facilitate the the vast administrative informational uh, burden of the Holocaust. Um, but also around that same exact time, uh, or a little, or a couple decades earlier, actually, the insurance industry was really pioneering the indexification of knowledge through literal index cards held in large steel filing cabinets with uh, battalions of computers, i.e., women who would be um, creating the these kind of hyper detailed profiles of people on index cards filed in big fi- you know cabinets as the uh, historian Dan Book um, calls it in, in his really uh, great book you know how our days became numbered right this was these were the first database and it's the insurance companies that were creating these kinds of first information architectures and databases and and but a lot of this is again it's 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 this trajectory it's this history this continuation of this kind of a centralization of difference once it's be, once it's created, and then the question becomes like, how is that treated, right? And how do people in various positions in various ways kind of contribute to that essentialization, both the creation and the recognition and continuation of it as a thing? You know, we have like really extreme examples um, of like you know someone we've talked extensively about in in some earlier episodes of the podcast Palmer Lucky, right? The kind of founder of Oculus, now that, you know, go on to found Andural Technologies, a sister company of Palantir, uh, very similarly uh, um, and explicitly about, you know, as he as he puts it right, innovating for the kill chain, you know, really kind of creating and providing these American-made technologies for the Pentagon, um, for the uh, uh, customs and, you know, immigration, the Border Patrol. And in 2018, right, uh, I, re- I just remember a quote that that we found for those episodes that we did with Michael Richardson way back in the early days of the podcast, uh, where Palmer Lucky was at a the Web Summit in Lisbon, one of you know one of these big conferences, um, and and on stage he says uh, technological supremacy is a prerequisite for moral supremacy. That it's that's like comically, explicitly uh, fascist uh, in all the ways that you're talking about. But it's also like you know, yes, Palmer Lucky's a cartoon supervillain in like every single way. Uh, well, like a cartoon supervillain from the Venture Brothers, as we as we talked about <laughs> exactly. And Jeremy just put put in the chat, I'm going to fight that Venture Bros villain one day. <laughs> and but there's like so many other people in various ways who contribute to that same kind of belief and that same kind of essentialization without even knowing that they're doing it or without being so explicit about their adherence to, you know, we talk about the political economy. I want to shift us towards talking about the political epistemology of data science. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's the people, the data scientists who have this, you know, belief in the power and, and authority of this epistemology um, without being, you know, so explicitly fascistic about it, but still being in that kind of like contributing to a system that is fundamentally, um, you know, 
and current well currently fundamentally fascistic in a lot of ways or it's the you know it's the frontline uh bureaucrat who just says well computer says no you know so it's like you you we, we just have to listen and we can't question, question it. This is all a, a, a complex way of getting us to something I want to ta- start talking about now, which is that um, in 2018, this was, you had a, uh, it's a brilliant paper. I love it a lot. And, and, uh, and I get something new from it when I go back. This was my first introduction to your work. Um, but you have this paper from, uh, in the journal Philosophy and Technology called Data Science as Machinic Neoplatonism. I want to get into, I think in order to understand the political economy and political theory of AI, we also need to understand the kind of political epistemology that uh, that um, is at the core of data science as this kind of profession, as this way of knowing and acting in the world, and as a, a, a particularly powerful and influential way of knowing and acting in the world. So um, I'll, I'll leave it there and, and let you, you know, maybe what, what made you want to start analyzing data science in this way and then we can get into some of your analysis and arguments about the kind of machinic neoplatonism uh, uh, at the core of data science sure yeah well well i'll, I'll kind of segue into it by by just um picking up on a, a couple of the tra- uh, trailer things that you you finished off with which was just for, for example as you say about the cartoon venture capitalist supervillain aspect you know i guess we all expect that you know, whatever social grouping we're involved in, there will always be one or two, you know, pathological people around. That's just the way it is. And it's obviously deeply unfortunate that those people um, gain incredible power, which is the indictment of the system. But what really interests me is why everyone else goes along with it. You know, why do all the people who work in those companies go along with it? Why did all the people, as you say, you know, had to, to administer that vast administrative apparatus of incredible evil in an evil effect? Why do they go along with it? And that, and that was why, you know, the, the, the Hannah Arendt's concept of thoughtlessness was useful to me uh, because it talked to and how uh, algorithmic additions to institutional structures can accentuate the ability of people to distance themselves from the consequences of what they're doing. I mean, if you do go to one of these refugee detention camps on, on, a, on a, an island or a, or a detention center here in the UK, wherever it is, you know, if you are simply a human being, you cannot be unaffected by the actual cruelty and, and violence of what's going on, but people are insulated from it. They do manage to distance themselves from it, and they do manage to carry on with administering these apparatuses. And, and I think it's important to to, to look at that, it's important to look at that, but it's also important to look at what the roles algorithms play in it. And this does circle back, I think, to, I had a look back at that paper myself, and I thought I knew I would have to, and I haven't read it in a long time. And actually, I was pretty, pretty happy with the fact that it had stood the test of time. I mean, I think that the, the thrust of the points I was trying to make there, I, I used them myself when I was, I was writing the book, which is, you know, much more explicitly trying to tackle, you know, the sort of um, ultra political and, and, and sort of global crisis aspects of AI. I did go back to those same concepts, and and I, I, I guess it was influenced, you know. Again, to 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 circle back to something 
I, I mentioned at the beginning, it, it, it was influenced by my own background in science. You know, I was, that is my education. You know, I, I was brought up with a very scientific worldview and I'm still committed to the idea of science, you know, in some way. I'm, I'm, I'm committed to the idea of the empirical investigation of our, of, of, of our world and our reality and the value of scientific methodology um, in some sense. But, but actually, I, I was a, I found a line of flight away from science because there were already many things about it that, um, as science, I found problematic in their, their likely social consequences in terms of the authority claimed in relation to the solutions provided, as you might say, or even the, uh, you know, the, the sort of, uh, visions of neutrality and objectivity and, and incredible insight as compared to the, the actual everyday practice that I observed. So, you know, I was already primed with some questionings about the scientific viewpoint, and the scientific view- viewpoint is one that data science, you know, it's the clues in the name, right? Data science. It, it explicitly names its own allegiance to scientific perspective. It mobilizes scientism. So it's not really some data science isn't science. You know, it's not based on, um, you know, repeatable experiments and, and a large body of mutually re- reinforcing and testable theories or, or falsifiable theories. It's not based on any of that stuff. It's, it's a bunch of statistical correlations that, you know, have a, a, a useful op- operational effect in a much more sort of immediate business or, you know, um, other in, in, in sort of investigative way. It's not science. But it has it has a scientific aspect. It draws authority from those things, and the things it draws authority from those those epistemologies. So I'm finally getting to your point, right? Those epistemologies, those ways of understanding the world, those ideas that there is, um, you know, the, the the point for me about Neoplatonism is the conviction that there is a deeper order to be found in the world. That's a very scientific. Um, in fact, Neoplatonism was one of the precursors of science, right? So the idea that there's a deeper order and the idea that that order is inaccessible to ordinary everyday experience um, and and only is only revealed by specialist and elite practices of some kind. So this would be getting towards either the scientist or the Neoplatonist philosopher, or in our case, the data scientist, that this, you know, this, or this greater symmetry, this great, this purity and again, you know, there we might say, well, there's a there's a hint of its problematic politics even in that term. But there's this this purity um, of insight into the world that is to be derived is is something that I found, you know, in the 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 much more sort of mundane papers on data science that I was reading at the time that there was this unquestioned allegiance to this ph- philosophy, mainly unconsciously and mainly through no fault of of the practitioners, because it's actually one of the dominant, it is the dominant knowledge philosophy in our society. It's the dominant knowledge philosophy that actually underpins all the other activities of society, uh, you know, in terms of law or business or everything else. So it's not surprise, it's not data science's fault, but data science is explicitly picking, picking that up and running with it in the process, partly because of being so unconscious about what heritage it was kind of picking up on there managing to cause a lot of collateral damage in the process so i don't know if that's if that's making it at all clearer but for me it was it was an it was a an already existing critique of this idea um that there was a mathematical vision of the world that was superior to people's lived experience and should be raised above it and uh, that actually had an epistemological superiority to you know to the voice of experience and uh, i find that that has a lot of negative consequences 
Absolutely. There's a lot there in, in terms of as well, I mean, because I'm, because I'm uh, now like so insurance pilled that I see everything in relation to all of the, the work I'm doing on insurance. And, and also I have a particular interest in actuarial science, which I think very much mimics your own kind of interest in investigation into data science. Um, because I think that there are a lot of really direct uh, core, like analogies and comparisons that we can draw between these two kind of professions that hold so much power in the world um, in, in very similar ways. Uh, and, and really the only differences between them are cultural, not, uh, you know, not epistemological, not economic, not political, not whatever. It's, it's just cultural differences, right? Of kind of features of their time. You know, when we think of data scientists, we think of the, you know, the hoodie wearing, uh, you know, kind of, you know, staying up all night, do, you know, you know, caught in the, the flow zone of coding and, you know, the, the, that kind of the, the tech bro kind of guy, right? That's what we think of when we think about the data scientists. When we think about, the actuaries, right? We think of a very so a stuffy and somber and sober uh, kind of suit wearing, you know, monotone, you know, all of that stuff. Uh, but those are features of the times that they that those industries were or those professions were created. Because, like data science, actuary science holds the distinction of being a profession created by and for the industry it serves. You know, actuarial science was created by and for the insurance industry. Data science was created by and for the technology companies, you know, and specifically the kind of Silicon Valley model of computational technology, digital technology companies. Whereas, you know, data science is uh, of, uh, uh, an outcome of the California ideology, uh, you know, actuarial sciences were was created literally in Victorian England, right? It was a product of the guild system. Uh, you know, Theodore Porter in his great book in uh, Trust in Numbers has a section where he talks about the gentleman actuary, uh, right? Where a lot of the moral authority of the actuary didn't come, you know, not come from necessarily, his, you know, his, and it's, it was always a he, uh, you know, superior techniques and, and data sets, but a lot of it was distinguished from their superior moral fiber and character, right? They were the type of person who would be able to expound authoritatively on subjects such as, uh, you know, morality tables and, and, and insurance premiums and that kind of stuff. Um, but ultimately, there's the, the same kind of epistemology at hand, and I think it it's why we can see a very uh, a kind of handshake happening between something like machine learning and and actuarial science where you know and and this is a kind of an insight drawing from your paper here but you know it, in both of these you know more direct forms of knowledge um such as your answer on an insurance questionnaire you know might be treated as actually less truthful than a proxy inference about you based on other sources. I'm writing a paper about all this right now, and so I just, I, at the top of my head, I have a, a quote from the president of U.S. Life and Health at Swiss Re, the, the world's largest reinsurer, who is uh, talking, giving an interview and a, a video for the credit, credit rated, 
credit rating agency AM Best. So I'm, I'm, I'm deep in the like industry, talking to industry, producing media for only industry. Um, but in this interview, the, um, the executive at Swiss Re said, you know, quote, we've got a number of predictive models going. One specific example would be we've got something called a smoker propensity model. It can predict whether you smoke or do not smoke without actually asking you the question or testing you for it. You know, so in other words, people lie all the time. And so insurers uh, like, cred like credit scoring agencies, like technology companies, like advertisers are much safer trusting indirect data about customers or consumers than direct information from consumers, right? In other words, it, it perfectly aligns with your observation in your paper that, quote, events in data science are constituted not from experiences, but from those traces of experience which can be datafied, end quote. And so, you know, this is you talking about and drawing from the work of people like Donna Haraway and kind of situated knowledges that, you know, that this kind of direct apprehension of information and experience is devalued because it centers an inferior subjective viewpoint rather than a superior objective God's eye view, you know, so it's, but in lieu of God, right, the machine will do, right? Uh, and, and that, that seems to be, you know, you have a really nice turn of phrase here in the paper where it's, uh, with data science, we have moved from metadata to metaphysics. It is an embedded, even weaponized philosophy. So, yeah, maybe could you expound on that a bit more, right? It's, it's not just that we have, you know, really, you know, by scientific standards, actually quite low standards of truth in data science and actuarial science, because all they want is statistical correlations, not causal, uh, you know, relationships. But that that, but there's something really powerful that comes from not caring about truth in that way. Yeah, and, and asserting a, a superior form of truth, you know, which is not it's not only problematic because it so obviously aligns with, you know, sort of stakeholder interests around various forms of exploitation. I think it's you know i have the same sense that you do that this is appealing to uh you know much much not more primal but a more deeply embedded um understanding of what's right and wrong i mean i think it's interesting that quite a few times in our conversation today the concept of morality and the moral judgment has come up and it's something that i do you know um i i do slip in a few times in, into the book simply because i i did feel that what algorithms were were making a lot of the time and this is very clear in the transformation of the ongoing transformations of the welfare systems which are which are happening right now through machine learning and ai are actually mobilizing forms of moral judgment and it's it is again interesting you know for, for both of these fields like you say data science and material science that that so much of this seems to have its origins in, in, in sort of victorian thinking um you know a, a sort of you were just making me think because i do reference um obviously the work of, of Victorian scientists like Galton and Pearson in terms of their mathematical development of regression, but also their commitment to eugenics. And, you, you know, you made me think that actuarial science, or rather eugenics, is a kind of actuarial science of the population in some sense. Um, so, so so I think what, what unlocked it for me really was feminism, actually. Uh, you know, was coming across the work of people like Miranda Fricker and her, her concept of epistemic injustice really that made the bridge to me from my unease about this assertion of a superior and abstracted mathematical knowledge um 
a level of insight that was somehow superseded people's own account of their own lives and experience and what it really meant in terms of material not, not material subjective interpersonal you know psychological psychic experience um of, of relationality or destruction of relationality that that really um was the rosetta stone for me in being able to link this unease with not only with its actual consequences but with what to do about it i mean that's really um it's it's good to have these kind of frameworks of analysis to be able to understand why actuarial science data science or ai itself these are all problematic why they all not only echo but are like a sort of amplifying distortion pedal of all the basically all the shit that we already know but what else is kind of urgent is where else what else what else we what we what we can do about it and where, where we can turn to start that process if if as we suspect i think the assumptions which underpin these rather you know rather grubby sciences are in fact um just a more refined version of the same problematic you know that there's a there's a deep commitment and almost a, certainly a moral commitment a aff affective commitment towards the kind of uh, insights that are generated mathematically their purity their symmetry their their abstraction if this is somewhere at the core of the the sort of knowledge frameworks that we've all absorbed without even knowing it because you know you don't have to do a phd in particle physics to understand to have absorbed this it becomes through in everyday life if we're all absorbing this at some level and we believe it's producing a world that is um undesirable or less than we should be living in where do we turn for ways of understanding that are different and th for me as i say a feminist critique of these things is 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 the unlocking it looks at those ways of knowing um in a social sense in the work of miranda fricker um but in a in a sense of science and technology studies as you're already saying in the work, work of people like donna haraway or sandra harding it's looking at these assertions of superior insight and debunking them and counterposing something utterly different counterposing that that sort of relationality and difference which goes back to what we we're talking about originally it's saying how do we unpick you know this how do we unpick this stuff how can we um weave something completely different from from um from a different starting with a different material and a different materiality so so yes i guess um you know when i was thinking about those things i was thinking that I was looking at uh, data science people speaking to data science people, like you're talking actuarial people talking to actuarial people, and that is a good starting point because there the assumptions are not coated in the need for sort of ethical posturing or uh, pretense at, at you know taking into account ordinary people's concerns. They're just expressed in the same way that the Snowden slides were so interesting because they were really just you know they were, that was one intelligence agency talking to another. There was no attempt to uh, coat it. So you know we, we're going into those spaces, immersing ourselves in it or I'm already, I work, you know, I work it on an everyday basis, you know, immersed in the language of computer scientists talking to computer scientists, but hearing it with a different, you know, hearing the other, you know, the, the other uh, resonances, the other frequencies that that speaks to and wanting to put in something completely different. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, you, you brought us exactly where I wanted to start ending us, which is that, you know, Really, as as a section in your uh, introduction of the book puts it from machine learning to mutual aid, you know, and it really is. I think that at the heart of all this is a is a is a feminist care ethic, and it's it's you know, imp its importance, its centrality for 
not only critiquing, but reorganizing, redirecting, restructuring, revolutionizing, and you know, even in terms of a just just you know turning over these these kinds of systems where a care ethic is largely devoid. You know, this is one thing, and we can see this all over the place. Uh, it's you know, it's the uh, uh, you know, it's in data science where there is no care ethic, there is no morality, right? Because it's just uh, it's data in relation to other data, um, and so it's it's fundamentally inhuman by design. Um, computer says no, computer does not care, uh, you know. Or it's in the things like what we started talking the the episode talking about, and we spent all of the last premium one talking about around like effective altruism and and uh, long termism has kind of you know made a virtue out of this kind of cold calculative moral uh, decision making which is by design devoid of any uh, care ethic um, whatsoever in fact they see they see that as a as a weakness of other moral yes. systems that you would have something like uh, care for other human beings rather than a calculus of utilitons uh, or whatever it may be. Um, and, and, and the same kinds of arguments have happened in the insurance industry, of course, where there is no care ethic, right? Like, you know, since at least the, I've seen in the, you know, since the 50s, actuaries writing in journals like, you know, the uh, Actuarial Society of American Proceedings and stuff, you know, so actuaries speaking to actuaries, which gets exactly what you're just talking about, you know, deride the kind of welfareist tendencies uh, in seeing insurance as um, something, as a kind of social enterprise, a cooperative enterprise about, you know, uh, sharing community, you know, sharing losses across the community, creating bonds of solidarity and care um, uh, uh, within communities. They deride that. They say, no, insurance is a system of risk transfer and reduction. That's all it is. Uh, you know, and so again, it's that kind of by design devoid of a care ethic. And I think I think we have to take it seriously when we see it every single turn, all of these industries and all these ideologies spending so much time to uh, rid themselves of any concerns about care, uh, to, to smother in the cradle any critiques um, or alternatives that might be might take care seriously. And I think it's because they it's a threat, right? They it, it, it's 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 an actual threat to uh, to their their both their means and their ends, um, and therefore. We have to take it seriously as as a threat, and we have to, you know, wield it as it is, as this kind of uh, uh, effective alternative, effective critique, um, effective way of, of of restructuring or revolutionizing. And so, I'll, I'll I'll give you the last word on this, and could you just talk to us a little bit about the the last kind of couple chapters of your book, where you do exp uh, expound more on this kind of positive ethic for data, uh, AI machine learning based on a kind of feminist care um, uh, approach. Yeah, I'll certainly, I'll certainly give it a go. Uh, but but I, I wanted to pick up on just very briefly on a couple of the points that you made, because I was thinking also about some of the other work that you've done, like around smart cities and so forth, and this constant, uh, the, the particular narratives and even terminology that comes up so much in that. And again, I hear it in the episodes you guys do on anything to do with fintech or blockchain, you know, the, the same um, morally valued terminology 
of efficiency, speed and scale, these kind of ideas, which seem so kind of uncontentious. They may seem to us sort of unappealing on a daily level or very appealing, depending on which, 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 what our allegiance is. But we don't read them perhaps in the way that we should do, which is that what they really express are a very muscular and sort of, a sort of misogynist masculinity and, and, and control mentality that really ignores the, the realities of, of, of the work of care that underpins everything. You know, the work of care, which is mainly done, you know, um, by women is mainly done by minoritized members of society. You know, that, that work is none of those things. That work is awkward and, and, and sort of time consuming. And it is not frictionless. This is not fast. It doesn't work at scale. It, uh, it works locally. It is, it is, and it requires patience. It requires, compassion these the, this is what underpins because and this is maybe trying to get more to the point of answering your question that the the alternative ontology or alternative well so it's the alternative epistemology i would pose against those which are weaponized by systems like ai is exactly that of interdependence exactly one where we start with relationality rather than a world of objects you know we're starting by recognizing our interdependence you know as 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 an, as an epistemological starting point and and as a lived reality you know there's none of this would happen i would not be able to do the work i do we would not be able to sit in these studios talking to these technologies if it wasn't for this relational fact that the world is underpinned by by acts of, of care from, from the very moment of giving birth to any of us. So these things are, are, I believe, actually a more profound reality than any of the, of the Neoplatonic claims to knowledge. And like really fortunately for us, these things come with, you know, where a lot of work has already been done to articulate what is a feminist approach, for example, to um, social questions or what is a feminist approach to 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 the idea of science for example and and i tried to take those things and combine you know or, or sort of work through them in understanding what this might mean as actual actual sort of tactics you know i i, I really am interested <laughs> in things changing and at the moment obviously they are changing but in a fairly horrendous and threatening direction and i think um it's pretty uh, much of a duty for all of us to try to articulate different understandings and visions of what we might do about it. So in the last part of the book, try to articulate a starting point like this. I try to express what form that might take. So I'm looking at, um, yes, uh, uh, generalized activities of mutual aid and solidarity, but how they might emerge, which they have done already in response to some of the threats of AI in things like workers' councils, uh, and to try and generalize that, the idea of people's councils. So these are, if uh, my understanding is that AI is an apparatus, by which I mean it's it's those technical bits we're talking about, those institutional bits we've talked about, and the, all the human activities that occur around it are in some sense a mutually articulated uh, engine of some kind and and the, the one of the tasks that faces is constructing a different engine you know constructing a different apparatus because these apparatus are themselves productive of reality so if we, where can we start well with uh you know an, an epistemology of relationality how do we approach doing something we get together you know we get together in horizontal and mutually uh, consensual modes of organizing to challenge what's already going on that's where the people's council things come in and and also to try to understand you know the the, the particularly the most toxic aspects of 
the current system which are you know leading to everyday cruelties and also leading to ecological collapse you know that the, the, the ongoing modes of enclosure the ongoing modes of exclusion the ongoing forms of elimination and necropolitics which is something that that is kind of um that terminology of expressing a system that is comes to a point where it's very much in the business of simply deciding who's going to live and who's going to die, who's going to be allowed to die, or perhaps who's going to be actively encouraged to die. Countering that with a system, yes, it's based on care that articulates mutual aid and solidarity, but also has a concept of the commons. And this this is maybe, you know, the 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 sort of the ghost of Luddism which haunts this conversation. That the Luddites themselves, you know, rec- had one of their letters, one of their threatening letters, because they the only literature we have from the Luddites is the ones that the the, the British Home Office retained in their archives, you know, uh, of inform- reports of informers and spies, but also the threatening letters that the Luddites themselves did pen to various factory owners. And you know, one of them has the timeless phrase of you know, put down all machinery hurtful to the commonality. And I think the the inversion of the state of exception, the counterpoint to these uh, aggressive and violent uh, and algorithmically mediated ways of organizing society. And it's, it's not inverting exclusion with, with inclusion because that's really just part of the same conceptual framework. It's, it's the other to that. And the other for me is the common. So I spend some time at the end there trying to, of the book, trying to, 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 to picture a way forward, which um, has built into it the kind of conviviality, to pick up on Ivan Illich's phrase, you know, the kind of conviviality of a, of a potential future that of, of, you know, will involve technology, you know, will involve technology and technical arrangements, uh, techno-social arrangements, but is explicit about its political commitments you know, to, to, a, to a, f- a fairer world for everyone and explicit about its, its solidarities. Well, on that, then I, I highly recommend everybody grab a copy of Resisting AI. If you listen to TMK, uh, you will see a lot of resonances uh, with the kinds of things uh, we talk about on TMK, the uh, the approaches we take on TMK um, with uh, Dan's own analysis and arguments and recommendations in Resisting AI. There's um, we're out, we're we're all working in the same. Uh, in the same crowd, absolutely, and I, and I love to see it. I love to see the continual uh, growth and and rehabilitation and revitalization of a properly Luddite approach to understanding these technologies, um, as a you know mechanically, but also uh, in terms of uh, where where we need to be taking them uh, critically. So grab a copy of of resisting AI. Uh, for, for, for more of all we've been talking about this episode. But Jeremy, I'm going to throw it over to you before we, before we head out. Well, yeah, I had a, I just had a couple little, little lighthearted things, I guess, in the episode off of, cause I mean, a lot of the topics that you, you covered in this book are pretty, you know, they're pretty damning and pretty heavy. Like, and I mean, I get it. There's a place for it, but, uh, I want to, I, I kind of have a question for you, Dan, how do you feel about, uh, AI, being used in art and how copyrights ab- about those things. So like perfect example is like a lot of people now using the Dali 
AI tool where they're creating art or there's been uh, people discussing, I don't know how to go forward with copyrights on AI made music, you know, shit like that. Like, what do you feel about that? I mean, I'm personally, as someone who creates art and music, I don't need quote unquote AI, like taking my job. That being said, you know, there are a couple of times where I've seen things that I'm like, okay, that's pretty damn funny. Like, you know, some of the Dolly. And then most recently I had someone point out to me that, uh, there was a, uh, a bot that was fed nothing but folk punk lyrics for hours on end and then wrote a folk punk song that is basically every folk punk song ever written is just talking about how they hate their life. They want to get drunk and they really hate the cops. <laughs> um, yeah. so how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you personally feel about arts place and AI? And do you think that it's, that it's something that can be discussed as away from the the topics of your book? Or do you think, do you feel that that is something that can be also encompassed in the conversation in your book? Oh yeah. I thought you were going to, uh, I thought you were going to put in something light at the end there. Like uh, I'm going to put a position on art and creativity. I, I saw something today. I think it was actually very similar, you know, uh, which was, uh, somebody asked GPT-3 to write a poem in the style of Lord Byron about the internet being invented in 1803 or something like that. And it was great. You know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, get, I get, I'm getting a lot out of that. I'm getting a lot out of the Dali stuff. And, you know, if there is in some ways a sort of legit application of AI, I would say it's a bit like, you know, it's, it's a kind of, it's a sort of, um, it's a, it's a, it's a mixtape technology and that that's okay. Uh, I think, you know, it, Actually, the questions about uh, intellectual property or whatever, I'm not like a big fan of intellectual property per se, but I would say that the idea that actually it's just, it, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's a great technology like, like in the much more serious stuff we were talking about, it's good at busting constraints. Right? So you could say that this stuff is sort of running into everyone's uh, portfolio, grabbing stuff, and then sort of you know remixing it for everyone else's amusements. And that's okay. And people are adding to that with their own genuine creativity. I mean, if you look at my understanding of Dali, and I've fiddled with it a little bit, is to get anything really good out of it, you actually have to put a lot of time into experimenting with your prompts. And and that in itself is is clearly an area of actual creativity you know being able to sort of mess with this thing and get it to come up with something good in itself is is, is a particular form of you know contemporary creativity and so I, I suppose my interest in it would be um you know something like the sort of situationist idea you know can, can you use this this can you use the tools of the system to detour themselves as they they would say you know to turn back on themselves to subvert themselves if if something that we can do with the creative technologies of ai is part of constructing a counterculture of 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 critique of ai itself you know something that exposes its own um some, you know somewhat parasitic nature but but uses it to 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 you know poke fun at the system and in you know just enjoy that really valuable moment which 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 i totally get of you know of of understanding our own um ironic moment where we can all see what's going on and right now we've got very little we can actually do about it and that's that's that that first sharing of that is like really valuable but um you know i'd like to say you know that what does it mean if, if, if we take that onto the streets? That's what I'm really interested in. You know, wh where's that counterculture, you know, going to make an impact? Part of me feels that it, like something like Dolly or like the AI-driven music creation platforms that are available to use is, I feel like it's a, a way of like soft introduction into people with 
you know, people that may not be versed in stuff like, you know, machine learning or AI, it might be uh, like a soft intro into them. Like, look, it's see, look, it's not so bad. It's, you know, it's taking your suggestions and making art or taking suggestions and making music. Um, I don't know what they're doing with that information in the long run, though. Yeah, I, and, I, and I think that's what the situations were, were sort of, you know, they got caught in, in that lobster pot themselves, I think. You know, they were saying, they, they were on the one hand saying that the spectacle, you know, the system that we're surrounded in, you know, is, is, is complete. You know that every critique gets reabsorbed into the system and becomes becomes an extension of that system, and I think there's something like that uh, happening with AI. You know, it, it seems like uh, we could, hey, well, maybe we could use this tool as a way of 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 getting an insight that empowers us in some ways into the problems of AI, or at least brings an element of doubt. Like if the art can do some crazy thing like that, well, I really hope it's not, you know, they're not using some similar system to check my cancer scans or something like that. You know, that's a really valid question to ask. And it's going to do something with, it's doing something very similar and going to have similar sort of weirdo failure modes, which are very amusing when it's art and not so amusing when it's your medical tests. So, so maybe there's a way of, of sort of detourning and subverting this stuff, but you know, that, that, that situationist uh, analysis had its own limits. I, I, I'm just as when Jathan was talking about the book and I was thinking about the Luddite, you know uh, the, the Luddite standpoint which I, I would align myself with I was thinking I maybe should have called the book Refusing AI you know and I, I think this is maybe where I'm at really it's like I, I do find this stuff fun some of it funny and and I like it and it's 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 amusing but I do feel that overall um, I don't know if this is your sense of it as well Jeremy but I think overall it's if you look at the sort of wider effects it has it's it's yeah, it's kind of softening things. It's luring people in. It's, it's making them feel like it's fun. And actually, we should just put this. We should just throw the off switch on this stuff altogether and start somewhere else. I agree with you. Can you imagine a world where you uh, you get denied your insurance money by the same AI that also created your favorite piece of art and favorite music? It's happening. Yeah, I mean that's that's. Uh... That's that's not a world that's unrecognizable from the one from the one we live in. I I do enjoy that. Uh, like TMK has so corrupted Jeremy now that this is his idea of something light and fun for the end of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I'm gonna I'm gonna call an end to this episode. Dan has been so gracious to stay up uh, very late for us uh, to to record. So. Um, thank you, Dan. This was, this was a lot of, a lot of fun. Uh, we, I'll, I'll throw a link to your Twitter, the book and the article in the episode description. Is there anything else that you want to direct people to? Yeah, well, no, not really, but I mean, th those will do great because what I'm really interested in is exploring these ideas with other people. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing something out there as, as to start a conversation, be part of a process. Like you say, we're all part of that process at the moment, you know, and, and I, I, I'm really interested in to hear from other people what they've got to say. Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, and thank you, dear listeners, for uh, for your support. Um, we always appreciate it. And you can find us for more on uh, at patreon.com slash this machine kills where we put out a premium episode every single week uh, with these kinds of discussions, topics and guests um, as we do on the free ones. So find us over there. Um, and until next time, later. later.